There are about a dozen films so seminal to cinema, it is difficult to think of the art developing without them. Voyage to the Moon, The Birth of a Nation, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Unchian Andalou, Citizen Kane, Rome Open City, Rashomon, Breathless, Eight and a Half, Persona and 2001. However, there is another so potent you only need to look at a section of it to appreciate how profoundly it has impacted the language. Made in 1925, Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin runs for an hour and a quarter, yet precious few complete films can equal the impact it achieved in its 10-minute Odessa step sequence. For this podcast, I would like to address two things. The inspirations for Eisenstein's montage, and then some of the less obvious examples that have extended his ideas. Freddy! What have you done to me? No doubt they'll sing in tune after the revolution. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. In his 1944 essay, Dickens, Griffith and Film Today, Eisenstein argued that English author Charles Dickens was the literary forerunner of film montage. Yes, Eisenstein admitted that other novelists, Tolstoy, Dumas and Balzac, were telling their stories in similar fashions. But a crucial difference occurs when we read Dickens' 1837 novel, Oliver Twist. Pay close attention to the third paragraph of chapter 17, and you will see Dickens clearly explaining his technique of parallel action. As sudden shiftings of the scene, and rapid changes of time and place, are not only sanctioned in books by long usage, but are by many considered as the great art of authorship, an author's skill in his craft being, by such critics, chiefly estimated with relation to the dilemmas in which he leaves his characters at the end of every chapter. This brief introduction to the present one may perhaps be deemed unnecessary. Going deeper into Eisenstein's essay, we see the enormous debt he expressed to the work of D.W. Griffith, specifically Broken Blossoms, Orphans of the Storm, and, although Eisenstein condemned its bigotry, the birth of a nation. It was from Griffith that Eisenstein not only identified the dynamism of cross-cutting, but also the psychological effect of cutting in for close-ups. But we must remember that those films were made in the silent era, and it was in that same age that Eisenstein formulated his montage theory. With the coming of sound, the sonic world would undoubtedly alter his technique. After the release of The Jazz Singer in 1927, editing did not just mean cutting, it meant mixing sound with the image, or against it. Let's consider a short moment from Abraham Polanski's classic noir from 1948, Force of Evil. Set amongst New York's numbers rackets, it focuses on the conflict between two brothers, Joe and Leo, played respectively by John Garfield and Thomas Gomez. Leo has been lured to a late-night restaurant with the plan to abduct him. You know, sometimes you feel as though you're dying. Here. And here. Here. You're dying while you're breathing. As Leo speaks, editor Art Side cuts away to a car arriving out on the street. The gang come down the steps into the restaurant, the patrons back up in terror and... Freddy, what have you done? The most violent image in Polanski's sequence is actually a sound. Stand up and walk! Stop him! Stop him! He knows me! Kill him! Kill him! He knows me! Of course, Polanski admits where he was getting the idea, because as Freddy is shot, 
Polanski gives us a close-up of his face and his shattered glasses, thereby visually echoing the famous close-up of the spectacled woman being hacked by the Tsar's Cossacks on the Odessa steppes. In this extremely brief moment, Polanski showed how sound could advance Eisenstein's theory. In his notebooks, The Film Sense and The Psychology of Composition, Eisenstein discusses the importance of framing, but only for an aspect ratio of 133 to 1. It is also worth noting that Eisenstein first formulated his theories while working in black and white. And while he only made one film in colour, and even then, only one section of Ivan the Terrible Part 2, Eisenstein was never afforded the opportunity to film in a wider aspect ratio. Obviously, those two additions would have impacted on his technique. Suddenly, with a colour palette and a wider frame, you are editing within the image, but without cutting. The wider frame and use of colour divides the composition into sections in a way the Academy Ratio and black and white emulsion could not. So let's consider a sequence made in colour and widescreen. David Lean's adaptation of Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago. Viktor Komarovsky, played by Rod Steiger, takes Lara, played by Julie Christie, to dinner in an opulent restaurant. Outside in the street, Lara's lover Pasha, played by Tom Courtney, is partaking in a peaceful protest. No doubt they'll sing in tune after the revolution. <laughs> Later, as Victor takes Lara home in his horse-drawn carriage, he begins to sexually assault her. And Lean's editor, Norman Savage, cuts away to the Tsar's cavalry guards, who are waiting to ambush the protest. There is no parallel cutting in the sequence, but by merely hearing the word mount, we infer and deduce the symbolism. Lara represents Russia. The dragoons attack the peaceful marchers, swords are drawn and blood is shed. Director of photography Freddie Young frames the image so we see the blood soaking into the white snow. We hear the sounds of the cavalry horses thundering away and a cut brings us to a chilly silence. Good night, dear. Good night. In a series of simple yet effective cuts, Lean has shown how sound, colour and widescreen can be used to develop Eisenstein's theory. This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. I'm Clyde Barrett. Clyde. We robbed banks. Although cinematographer Bernard Guffey was filming in 185, when it came to the climactic shootout, Arthur Penn decided to film it using multiple cameras at various speeds. Hey. Which resulted in a slow motion that concertinas the slaughter, stretching it out while the editing speeds it up. And undoubtedly, those varying frame rates heavily influenced how editor Didi Allen cut the sequence together. Released in 1969, Easy Rider took Eisenstein's theory in a very different direction. 
Whereas previously, the editing collage the action before the camera to put an idea inside the mind of the spectator. The Mardi Gras sequence in Easy Rider, and specifically when the characters enter the graveyard, afforded Dennis Hopper the opportunity to penetrate the minds of the characters. Yes, Lev Kuleshov had already illustrated how editing one shot against another could imply what a character was thinking. But again, that was in the silent era. Now sound could be used against the image so we see one thing and hear another. In addition to the grainy Super 8 footage edited by Don Camburn, sound mixer Leroy Robbins layered in voices, music and auxiliary noises. The accumulation of which reveals the hitherto unknown psychological torment of Peter Fonda's Captain America. So far, all the sequences we have mentioned have depicted physical violence or psychic disturbance. Which perhaps is only to be expected because Eisenstein's theory is built on visual collision and conflict. So it takes an especially gifted filmmaker and unique subject to maintain that collision, yet move it away from violence. Which is what Nicholas Rogue did in 1973 when he made Don't Look Now. Having begun his career as a cinematographer, lighting Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death, François Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, John Schlesinger's Far From the Madding Crowd, Richard Lester's Petulia, as well as sections of Dr. Zhivago and The Train Attack in Lawrence of Arabia, Rogue then branched out into directing. His first two films, Performance and Walkabout, showed that he not only had a painter's eye, but also an intricate understanding of both editing and sound mixing. Watch Walkabout with the sound turned down and you get one movie. Listen to it with your back turned to the screen and you get another. Adapted from Daphne du Maurier's ghost story, which she published in her 1971 collection Not After Midnight, Don't Look Now tells a grieving couple Laura and John Baxter, whose young daughter succumbed to meningitis. But under Rogue's guidance, screenwriters Alan Scott and Chris Bryant made a number of crucial changes and additions. Rogue decided that since most of the story takes place in Venice, the child should not die from meningitis, but rather from drowning. And then, Rogue invented a scene that did not exist in the book, the moment when Laura and John begin to revive. In their hotel at night, they lie on the bed, browsing through a magazine. They instinctively begin to caress and kiss and make love. And then Rogue and his editor, Graeme Clifford, intercut this intimacy with them getting dressed. Looking at the sequence back and forth, you realise their love is redressing their suffering and helping them back into the world. But a detail that many people often overlook is that in this montage, the action is not parallel. Rather, one is happening now and one later. (music) 
So far, we've been discussing sequences where the time is always moving forward. That changed in 1985 when Elam Klimov unleashed his blistering war picture, Come and See. Taking its title from the Book of Revelations, John chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. It focuses on a young boy, Floria, played by Alexei Kravchenko, who was a witness to, and a victim of, the Nazi invasion of Belarusia in the summer of 1941. His village is raised to the ground, but Floria survives, and Klimov ends the film with the now very decrepit youth staring at a photograph of Adolf Hitler. He cocks his rifle and shoots. Klimov and his editor Velaraya Belova then cut in archive footage and begin running it backwards. At first confusing and then surreal, it continues until we realise what Klimov is saying. History can never be undone. Moving back to the issue of aspect ratio, in 1976 Brian De Palma adapted Stephen King's novel Carrie and for the climax he used split screen. De Palma had used the technique several times before, as indeed had other filmmakers. In 1927, Abel released his monumental biopic Napoleon, where he used polyvision to divide the screen into three panels in an effort to convey the magnitude of one of Europe's most influential figures. Almost four decades later, in 1966, John Frankenheimer used it in Grand Prix to convey the fierce energy of a Formula One race taking place in Monte Carlo. Two years later in The Thomas Crown Affair, Norman Jewison went further by dividing the screen into several unequally sized pieces. At various points in the story, the screen fragments to show the thieves hired by Crown, played by Steve McQueen, as they go about robbing a bank. But the way De Palma tackled the technique in Carrie admitted that sound can do something a lot more readily than the image can. Tell us two things at once. We listen in stereo, but the human eye cannot focus on two different things at the same time. By using split screen, De Palma was trying to show us several planes of action at once, while the soundtrack mixed those elements for us to more easily navigate their complexity. Unfortunately, it didn't work. For an example that did work, consider Peter Greenaway's adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. Instead of split screen, Prospero's books used multiple images overlaying one another, and then mixed them with the sounds of John Gilgood's voice, where he spoke all of the dialogue. Again, what Greenaway and his editor Marina Robdill were doing was compartmentalising within the frame instead of rapidly cutting from one image to the next. Amongst mainstream filmmakers today, there is perhaps no other director who tries more to augment Eisenstein's theories than Christopher Nolan. From Memento, The Dark Knight trilogy and The Prestige, to Inception, Interstellar and Dunkirk, Nolan has been pushing the limits of montage, delivering not just parallel action, but mixing them with different spaces and times. And after that, 
Who knows where the next frontier of Eisenstein's theories will take us?